Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan, read the paper on Sunday, July 12th, 2020. And we have a special guest today, all the way from the other side of the continent, Zeke Abuhoff. Yes, brought to you by the magic of Zoom and Audacity and all kinds of technical things. And the first thing we learn when we look at the Zoom recording is that Zeke is not wearing the proper attire. Both Tams and I are wearing the Brooklyn Wets t-shirt, the t-shirt associated with the very successful Brooklyn water polo program headed by uh, Granger. And uh, Zeke, what's the story? Granger and Nico. Granger and Nico. Did you order one of the shirts, uh, Zeke? First of all, hello. Uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Hello, all you all you listeners. Yes. Um, you know, uh, I, think, I think I just don't happen to have one of those shirts. We're sending um, you one. We're sending you one. If so, that's great. Uh, personally, yeah. I'm I'm a big fan of the uh, ret- the the uh, vintage branding, I should say, of Brooklyn Wets. You know, they had uh, a really uh, fun, colorful, unique uh, logo a few years ago, and I was I'm just so devoted to that particular branding that I haven't bothered to get the new right. stuff. Well, get it out. But get I know the new the stuff next... looks great. Yes, <laughs> get it out for the next podcast. We don't want you out of step. All right, so this is a multi-coastal podcast. We got a lot to cover, as we normally Multi do. Multi-what? Multi-coastal. Left oh, okay. coast and right coast. All right. Yeah. And uh, so, Tamsin, lead us off. Well, um, I noticed this week that uh, actually um, the big excitement uh, in New York is that Storm King, the sculpture park, is opening back up okay i can see you're not exactly on the edge of your seat dan uh but uh Zeke might be interested but yes go ahead storm king is a magnificent place uh up in uh mountainville new york and uh it's uh, a sculpture park yeah no we've been modern to sculpture we've been it's to like storm. 180 acres right. you roam around yeah. the scenery is fantastic uh, just rolling hills and rivers and so on. And, well, one river, the Hudson River. And uh, it's, um, you know, a great place to yeah. be. And it's, you know, it's got really amazing uh, sculptures. Yeah. I modern mean, sculptures, right. mostly. And, I, you know, it's not like I'm a modern sculpture person. But they work. It's fantastic. And uh, it, you know, was founded in about 1960. Originally, it was having Hudson River paintings or whatever, and somehow segued into fairly contemporary sculpture. And it's just uh, a great thing to do in this day and age of not being able to go into museums. Right. Well, that's, it's the perfect thing. I mean, look, I, you say you're not a fan of modern sculpture. I'm not a fan of any sculpture, but uh, but the the outdoor sculpture stuff is fun stuff. There's the one we've been to Storm King, but actually more often we've been to the grounds for sculpture in uh, Trenton, New Jersey, or Hamilton, New Jersey, and uh, it's bizarre. It's amazing. You're walking around outside, and you have these, you know, very creative, you know, straight out of some kind of cosmic adventure sculptures. Uh, they're even more impressive at night, if you ask me. Uh, and uh, Storm King is even bigger and more spectacular than the one in Trenton. You said, you mentioned that the big article in the Times about it opening back up. The only real question is, why did it ever close? I mean, 
That's true. That's true. And matter of fact, the one in Trenton is still closed, which makes no sense whatsoever. How stupid is that? Right. It it is such a great way to be getting fresh air and exercise and, uh, you know, some enjoyment and culture. Yes, culture. Uh, But uh, so it's mystifying. You know, none of the indoor stuff is open. Okay. Yeah, but who needs that? Well... I'm, the restrooms might be open. Oh, that would be a good touch. Might need that. But uh, uh, other but, than that, uh, you know. You don't need. Zeke, have you been to the, the one in uh, Jersey? The yeah, many sculpture? times. And uh, you endorse it? i of the grounds for sculpture. There you go. Yeah. So wake up, Murphy. Open up some of this stuff. <laughs> okay. okay. Ooh. Didn't what take is long. the problem? Three the minutes into the podcast. Is thrown down. There's a t shirt for you. Wake up, Murphy. I mean, uh, that could be. On Long better. Island, museums are open. Indoor museums. Yeah. Well, they're very... Yeah. Cultural. Historic they're, sites. They're culture vultures in Long Island. They can't live without their museums. New Jersey's a little bit different, Timson. and you have to realize that. Um, so that's uh, All right. a great thing to do. And even, uh, you know, years from now, when we're over the uh, pandemic, it will still be a great thing to do. Yeah. No, no. So it's fantastic. Keep it in mind. It's fantastic. Storm King. So Zeke, Stanford, Zeke. Stanford. Yes. That's a place in the state that I'm in. <laughs> there you go. You're covering. You're our local reporter on the beat. What's going on at Stanford? Uh, well, wait they... a minute. Can I ask you? Have you been to Stanford lately? Lately? Uh, have you been no, there since not... you went to water polo camp in like <laughs> many no, moons I ago? I don't. I don't think so. I don't think I've been there since then. Okay. I think he can still report. You're our man on the scene. I assume it's still there. Don't be put Uh, off. Your mother does this. She's trying to. No, but we don't. We don't need me to go there. We have the wonderful reporters at the New York Times checking it out for us, letting us know that things are afoot at Stanford regarding their athletic programs. Specifically, they are dropping eleven sports, eleven different uh, sports at at Stanford athletics are now, I guess, coming to a close. Hmm. And they cited uh, budget concerns as the motivation behind this. They say that uh, the you know coronavirus was a factor, but they also, uh, I guess, are careful not to blame the whole thing on that. It seems like there were budgetary issues funding all of these different sports to begin with. And perhaps now at a time when so many things are closing down and... Getting shut down, I think they they view this as an opportunity to uh, to shutter these sports without too many people noticing or causing a big fuss. Exactly. Um, yeah. These schools have been dying to shut down some of these sports, it's you a, know, and it <laughs> happens every few years. Well, I mean, we've been through it a, a bunch of times. Temple has done it, you know. Yeah, but, it, but this is different. It's expensive. They're not revenue producing, right. and so the schools decide, we don't need this. Yeah, but the difference between you know? this and Temple is... is <laughs> Stanford's endowment is $26.5 billion. Yeah, so what is going on? Everybody knows. Mensano and Compore Sano. Yes. Right? Has well said, Timson. Okay, a sound mind and a sound body. Right? I, 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 I don't, I don't think sports. any of us know how much those fencing foils cost. Uh, we can only assume <laughs> it's billions upon billions. Well, Not to mention um, the who gel can, who can for the hair books. of the synchronized swimmers, right? Yeah, I will. I yeah, that is. It is odd. It's like they. Why? What motivates you to cut synchronized swimming exactly? Well, yeah, because I, it's not can, as can though they're cutting in? all aquatics. It's not as though they are bulldozing the pool and saving money on chlorine or something. Like, 
it seems specifically that they don't want to what send these people on buses to to the national championships that they qualify for and sometimes win. That's actually one of the saddest things about this is that some of these are really championship level programs, um, and some of them are sending Olympians uh, on like you know now and then every few years are sending off some Olympians. So it's pretty wild to say like uh, these are not our most expensive sports necessarily, but these are the ones we think we should cut. Um, well, and it's know, spooky, I, I think, for anyone like like myself who who historically has participated in non-revenue generating sports right, right. to just see that one day you could wake up and find your program has disappeared. Well, I think it, the you're right. I agree with all that, and and I think what's fundamentally wrong is the orientation. The sports aren't really there first and foremost for revenue. The sports are there for the Latin reason Tam to describe, which I won't repeat. Which it's it's part of the the, the notion of participating, complete your experience, complete your education. That's why they're there, and that seems to be a value that's nowhere in the discussion of Stanford dropping all these sports. They have synchronized swimming, so that there are folks who aspire to and want to train for synchronized swimming and have the camaraderie and accomplishment that goes with it, have part of their educational experience celebrated in the pool. That's why they're doing it. And the idea of cutting it really is antithetical to that. So look, uh, it's hard to really figure. It's hard to really figure. And if, if, if someone, if an organization with $26.5 billion has to cut it, then you're gonna see, uh, you'll be saying goodbye to a lot of these programs. Yeah, um, the, uh, I, was, I just want to note quickly that like that's I think that's the part that's perhaps most disturbing to me is just the idea that if a particularly rich school uh, is closing down programs that don't even strike me as necessarily the most expensive exactly. Yeah. And and at that that is what is so questionable about it, I guess. I can imagine that it's uh, that college athletics can be an expensive thing and that they're going to be tough times in terms of budget, uh, especially now, and you can expect something to get cut. But this really kind of stinks yeah. as far as like why these sports, why this school, uh, why why in this way? Well, you know, I, I'll tell you something. You know, one of the sports, in, in fairness to Stanford, one of the sports that's being cut is crew. So they're cutting men's crew and they're cutting out lightweight crew, which is their way of saying both women's and, uh, and men's lightweight crew. Uh, so I guess they're keeping the main women's program, but putting that aside, um, you know, people used to talk about, you know, are we going to go to the national championship? What can we do to make the program number one in the country? And I would listen to those discussions when I participated in crew in college. But frankly, I also would say to myself, I'm doing crew for an entirely different set of reasons. It has nothing to do with whether we make it into the national rankings. You know, whatever I'm getting out of it is personal. It has to do with my own physical and intellectual development. You know, if we make it to the national championships, fine. But uh, that, to me, was never the primary goal. And I don't think it should be the student's perspective that it's the primary goal. So, uh, look, I guess we're all agreed on that. So going from the, um, I don't know, is this sublime or ridiculous or reverse? I don't know. But one thing that your mom and I always notice when we're traveling on Route 1 in New Jersey is that the roads are very quiet. You hardly see a soul until you go by Trader Joe's. And when you look at Trader Joe's, there was a line snaking around an entire outdoor mall. People want to go to Trader Joe's. And, uh, okay, I, I think I get a sense of that. I'm not a Trader Joe's shopper, but people prize whatever they're selling there. But what's funny about it is that uh, this is, goes on in the city, too. And when it goes on in the city, that you have lines right under, uh, right, right adjoining apartment buildings where people are living. 
And often they're in so close proximity that they're listening to the conversations the folks online are having. Well, they uh, they can't avoid it. They can't avoid it. And, and frankly, I'm sure it's very annoying yeah. to have all these people standing right. outside your window it, uh, day after day after day. Well, that, that's exactly right, Tamsin. This is why the Times is writing about a, a group in a particular apartment building sort of joined together. And they started to putting out putting out signs outside the place where people stand online, which are sort of clever cautionary tales trying to silence people. And they say things like, and I'm reading one of the signs, Chad, we are so sorry your wife is leaving you. And we are sure the everything but the bagel seasoning will help you. But is this really the place to discuss it? So, so it's responding to whatever they're saying. It's responding to whatever they're saying and, and trying to get, or here's another sign. Uh, you know what, Jacqueline? I think he is cheating on you. And uh, they go on from there. Uh, All right. I think this goes in the category of you got to be there, but it, it sounds cute. Zeke, okay. are you laughing off mic, Mike? Is that what's going on? I'm, I'm uh, giving a sensible chuckle on okay. my hand. He's... He's rolling in the aisles. I think it's an effective... Convulsed in silence. And of course, in the Times way, it, it, the moral of the whole story is everyone in the apartment buildings uniting and getting to know each other in the way they did it before the pandemic. So that's the uh, the bottom line. They're making ending. it fun. They're, They're using this fun. as a community bonding experience. Well, that's the way to do it. That's All right, but that it. doesn't happen at the strip mall Trader Joe's. No. That's no. just a city thing. Everyone's out for themselves. Okay. Everyone wants their own green chilies. All right, go ahead, Townsend. Here's some bad news. What's that? I may have missed my window. What this is? To see Hagia Sophia in Istanbul. Mm. The most magnificent uh, building uh, that has been both a church, a mosque. It's also been a museum. And uh, at the moment, it, it was a museum. And now it's being switched back to be used as a mosque. Which, now. Yeah. Yes. What? They say it will be open to tourists. I think it must be open to tourists because it's got to be a moneymaker. Yeah. Don't you think? (laughs) I would think. I mean, um, but uh, so. But tell us how old this building is. You you told me. This is super old. So old that you couldn't even put put your finger on it. It was built by Justinian the first or right. Justinian the Great. Yeah. Uh, and it, it opens up and around, I don't know, 532, 537. Okay. Wow. Okay. That's some time ago. The sixth century. And it's a huge, uh, impressive structure, you say. The dome is unbelievably huge. Yeah. And it has this magnificent dome supported by pendentives. Mm. Okay. Mm. My and favorite. a yeah. ring of about 40 windows around that the base of that huge dome so that the dome itself seems to float really in the sky because the sun okay. comes through the windows and, yeah. and when it opens as, as a church okay yeah. as a christian church right. all right um people write about it and they say obviously obviously god is here and it's so beautiful God wants see, to see, be here. See, You'll want to be here, see, you're, too. You're missing this. Your mom's verklempt, verklempt it, as it, we say in the trade. It's It's been it's through an a overwhelming lot. piece of architecture. Who can blame her? I, I mean, <laughs> All right. it really, it's it's been through a lot, okay? Yeah. It falls down. It burns down. It's, it's built back up. Yeah. Um, and uh, But uh, it manages to survive to the 
Ottomans, when the Ottomans take over in the 15th century, it then becomes a mosque. Okay, yeah. that makes some sense. Right. Right. Um, and let me just say this. You Go know ahead. how you know how mosques generally have domes? Yeah. Yes, I do. This is why. Because this was such an impressive structure. Because this um, Hagia Sophia really sets the uh, taste for domes, mm -hmm. you know, really throughout uh, Christian architecture and throughout okay. uh, Muslim architecture as well. Now, it will, it will be surpassed to some extent uh, by um, like the great uh, uh, Muslim um, architect Sinan, who does amazing mosques, but nonetheless, it starts that trend, okay? But in the 1930s, uh, it becomes a museum. It's part of that whole secularization process. Uh, um, Istanbul wanting to run with the big dogs in terms of, you know, touristic attractions, etc., like Paris, mm -hmm. like Rome, uh, etc. And Istanbul, I think we covered this yesterday, is Constantinople. And, and, uh, yes. And I think we, well, I... Constantine, the first yeah. Christian emperor, yeah names it after himself. Okay. Well, okay. Constantinople. There is All right. There is that song. It's Istanbul, not Constantinople, which you were not familiar with. Zeke, do you know that song? I am familiar with that song. There he goes. There he goes. I, I don't think that... Is that Istanbul, not Constantinople? No, I no. It was I saying that the wrong. I think it's saying that it is. I think it's trying to educate people about it being the same Maybe place. we'll play that at the end. We'll see. But And you were uh, totally uh, aware so of this mosque. There might be giants. Oh, really? Yeah. I think it was the Andrew sisters before that, but uh, even so, good enough. Anyway, so we, we need, it is, um, people are a little bit nervous about this yeah. because you can't lose sight of it that it's kind of a world heritage site. All right. Okay. Um, so that uh, you want aspects of it to be preserved. As I said, it's been through a lot. It's been whitewashed during various iconoclasms, etc. cetera, uh, but it manages to... It has managed to uh, survive. All right. And, uh, I, you know, well, interesting. I, it does make me wonder, like you started out saying you may have missed your chance. I mean, but you also noted that uh, supposedly it will still be open to visitors. Right. So I, I wonder what I'm... the real implications are for this. Is it going to be open? I guess this is a kind of ongoing exactly. question when we think about Turkey today is like, is it just, I don't know, is the, is the kind of nationalism that is currently powerful there uh i don't know is that is that relatively harmless is that just what turkey is interested in right now or is are there is there going to be a shift in uh i guess turkey's culture and and some of their national positions like this like how how welcoming it is to folks i certainly well, cle don't clearly know. clearly it seems like a, a an attempt to curry favor uh with the you know Conser more conservative religious factions, don't you think? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems it seems really calculated to do that, and it just I don't know. I guess when I see events like this, I always wonder just how substantial the consequences are. Like uh, when you see someone trying to appeal to their base, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of like head of state appealing to their base, it makes me wonder: is this just a gesture to get someone riled up, get someone excited? Uh, but really, it's not going to shake, uh, you know, everyday life. Or is this spooky? Is this some more, uh, you know, some some 
highly opinionated political faction trying to make a big push. And I don't know enough about Turkish politics to know, but I think that's probably why some people have taken notice of this uh, change in categorization, is that it makes you wonder about what's next. Yeah, I mean, uh, Constantinople in its time was the key spot of, you know, Rome falls, right? Rome is destroyed. It's in Constantinople. It's in the East where classical culture is basically preserved and maintained until, um, you know, later revivals. And uh, so that uh, it, this is a key spot. This is a key spot. There's, uh, you know, a lot of important aspects of the culture of Constantinople slash Turkey slash Istanbul uh, that reverberate throughout uh, Western European uh, culture as well. And so it will be a crime if we completely lose uh, access to all of that. Right. I'm nervous. Okay. So duly noted. Uh, so Zeke, the Times had an article about tech that lasts and lasts, which uh, I don't know. Did that really give you anything that uh, you didn't know? Did that give, create any real value for you? Well, there are some helpful tips there. Uh, does this... does any tech last? I See, my, <laughs> I always thought not, but Zeke is going to tell us differently. Yeah, How well, buy tech. I mean, some of it does. The interesting thing, I guess if there is an interesting thing, especially about this article, at the very least, it's it's sort of a list of sensible items to take into consideration when you are buying new electronics. Um, you know, think things like, can it be repaired if it breaks? Things like, is the uh, software on it uh, supported in an ongoing fashion by the people who make that? Um, things like, uh, is it going to be useful to you uh, a few years from now? The, they bring up the term future-proofing, which is the idea that you want to buy something that is that can withstand the shifts in needs and uh, uh, uses of technology over time. So how, the example how, to give is how, like if you how how what? how can you even know that? <laughs> well, no, there's there's some basic things you can look out for. Just like uh, I think the example they give is like uh, the amount of storage on a device. You know, if you go to buy an Apple product, they're going to have a few different versions of the same product that uh, where the price varies in accordance with how much storage is available for data on it. The less storage, the lower the price. And you might be tempted to think, oh, well, you know, I think that number of gigabytes is plenty for me. I think that's fine. I don't see myself doing anything else with it. Uh, so I'll, hooray, I get to save myself, you know, whatever it may be, $100, $200 on, on the difference in storage. But then in a couple years, you say, oh, my goodness, I've run out of storage. This thing is now such a pain for me. And uh, oftentimes selecting that, you know, one tier up can save you that trouble because it's not too hard to imagine. There have been certain trends like over time, um, you know, like programs tend to require a little bit more uh, processing power and files tend to be a little bit larger and things that get you know transmitted over the internet tend to be like you know, larger sums of data so basically picking the bigger numbers in advance can pay off in that way it's not necessarily too hard to figure out okay if i need you know 56 gigabytes of storage today maybe two or three years from now i'll need 128 gigabytes so if i buy the 128 version today maybe that'll help me out 
Um, so there's definitely there's definitely some like sensible advice in this article in this sense. So if you're thinking about buying some new electronics soon, I'll check it out for that reason. It's also an interesting piece just to think about what uh, issues of repairability and longevity are like for technology today. Uh, like some companies come under a lot of criticism for basically deliberately making their items not repairable and not long lasting, not relevant several years from now. People mm -hmm. love to complain about this with Apple, uh, even though I think in some ways they have a, a good record, in some ways a bad record. You know, they release a new iPhone every year and try to get everyone excited about it. They offer a subscription program for owning your phone that uh, allows you to switch to the new phone every year as if it were uh, an important thing to do. In reality, they actually make good enough phones that you can keep them for two years and make it like you probably find it three years, probably find it four years. Uh, you know, you, I know some people who are, who keep it longer than that and that may be, you know, going for gold. But still, to think that an item can last four years, but the marketing team wants you to believe it's a one year cycle. Um, I don't know. I guess that... That gives you pause, I guess, when you're trying to figure that stuff out. I will say they are a, they are a little bit worse in their record on repairability. So you buy a, you a mean computer. Apple's, Apple's worth Apple record. specifically, and yeah. other other companies have this issue too. But Apple specifically will you know it used to be that they sold you a laptop, and if you were to unscrew a panel on that laptop, you would find all these distinct parts in there, and you could kind of swap them out. Now maybe they had configured those chosen those parts and arranged those parts in a in a very careful way to try to maximize space and efficiency within the machine but the act of replacing it was fairly of replacing any particular part was fairly intuitive today they tend to do more things in a more like uh, unique bespoke kind of way they they also tend to glue parts together for anyone who repairs these devices glue is the bane of their existence because once something is glued together it can't just be unscrewed and now it's essentially a big commitment that uh, manufacturer has made to how that thing is going to be built so as apple has got into building their machines in a very particular way and gluing everything together uh, they have made it less repairable which is you know which really comes off to many people as a as a sort of uh, affront to the little guy who wants to maintain their own devices get the most value out of them it really pushes you toward buying the new thing and that's pretty rough um uh, to, uh, so I'll, now now i'm totally de depressed no 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 i think uh, <laughs> i think this is interesting i think this is interesting i mean uh, okay yeah, and, and, right. and not, not to rag on Apple too much because other companies have other issues with this as well. Like I would say one of the big problems, if you're thinking, oh, I'll get away from Apple, I'll buy an Android phone instead. Well, as I note in this article, Android phones tend not to have their software supported uh, for terribly long. An operating a phone will be sold to you with a particular operating system, not really with the expectation that you will that this phone will be compatible and effective with every new version of the operating system for several years to come. I think there were At some least Android Apple will products. sell you a phone yeah. where, you know, three, four, five operating systems later, you'll still, you know, it'll still pretty much be working fine and it's built for that hardware. Android, you often like buy the, you know, phone with the operating system and a couple of years later you're saying, yeah, my phone is old. You're just, you're just in that position. Yeah, well, I think they do mention there are a couple of products too that you actually cannot swap out the batteries. That the batteries are sealed yeah, in that and that's too. that. And batteries, yes. the batteries have a, a kind of set lifespan. If you can't swap mm -hmm. out a battery, and then eventually you're going to be in trouble because they only recharge so many times, and then they stop recharging effectively. So 
that can really put a pretty firm end on a device's lifespan. All right. Very good. So, All right. So um, my, my next article is uh, from the uh, Wall Street Journal. Men versus women, the thermostat battle. So, I mean, we, we've heard it for years, you know. Yeah. Um, we're all familiar with I the I can't idea. remember what it was, though. Who wants a cooler? Men want a cooler? Or women yeah, want women a... need warmer oh, okay. rooms, okay? Right. But what's fun about this article, it actually says studies have been done. Women perform better yeah. when it's warmer. Well, they're more comfortable. Okay? Well, yeah. well, no, but here's the funny thing. Men, it doesn't matter. Okay, so they did a, they did a study and you know of uh, people performing on math and verbal tasks. Yeah. All right, uh, men versus women, uh, cool, warm, hot. The men's scores don't really change. That's this. Okay, there's <laughs> no significant exactly. difference. You know okay, why? but for the women, they do significantly, statistically, right. significantly, significantly better. You know why? When the room is warmer. I can tell you why. So why? Because men are focused on their work. They're not feeling the out out uh, outside temperature. They're not yeah, feeling their right. surroundings. Okay. Yeah. They're, they're not messing around. You they're, know. They're focused. Yeah. They're focused. Yeah. I love that, there's, Daniel. There's but your the, hugely the tone is, deaf comment of the day. <laughs> if uh, if uh, companies raise the temperature a little bit, product- productivity. Uh, may go up. And it also, that's kind of good news uh, for saving money on air conditioning. It certainly and so is, forth. yes. And then the rest of the article goes uh, into great detail yeah. about how in Japan there's an effort to uh, get, uh, you know, promote raising yes. the temperature well, not, uh, not, during not the, incidentally, the summer. It turns out that the most destructive temperature for the coronavirus, 78 degrees. So uh, I think you're going to get higher temperatures in offices when people come back. Yeah, they, so, so they recommend. To worry about. But the, yeah. the study recommends between 73, uh, between 73 and 78.8. Is, is that the new the plan from the CDC to sweat it out? Are yeah. Are we going to do yeah. a, a sweat lodge 78 approach? Degrees, 78 degrees and high humidity is death for the virus. And it's a little uncomfortable if you're a woman. But if you're a man, you don't notice the temperature. So that's the thing to keep in mind. So there was... Mm. A, no, no, no. You, you just blew it. Why? Women like it warmer. I understand, but men don't care. You know, well, men, men are as productive in all circumstances. That's the headline to me. The, uh, there was an article about... Men are not that productive well, ever, so what's the diff? <laughs> Well, that's another that's, way to That's it. what I think they're saying. Okay. There's, men could not improve their performance. There's no temperature they can create that's going to make men productive. Yes. Got it. Got it. So I, so many times people hear stories about uh, Lou Gehrig's uh, very passionate Never. Passionate not one. Farewell. I, you know, doesn't come up. Which he said, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Lou Gehrig, uh, by terrible coincidence, uh, suffered Lou Gehrig's disease in 1939. And uh, he was toward the end of his career, but of course he was toward the end of his life. And they had a special Lou Gehrig Day at uh, at Yankee Stadium, and he made his famous speech in which he said, "Everyone thinks I had a bad break, but in fact, uh, I feel I'm the luckiest man uh, on the uh, alive." Um, and Gary Cooper played him in the famous movie. All this is true, and they have uh, yet another article about it because the anniversary is coming up. But here's something that I didn't know, and which was interesting to me at least. Uh, Babe Ruth played a part in this ceremony. 
Now, Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, obviously the great sluggers and the great baseball players who were teammates, particularly in the year 1927, when uh, Ruth hit his 60 home runs and Gehrig hit uh, 50 odd home runs, and they were the greatest pair of sluggers on a particular team, and it was a legendary Yankee team. Well, by 1939, uh, Ruth was retired, and you always think of Ruth as sort of an aloof figure, a little bit of a drinker. No one admires him the way they admire Gehrig, and no one talks about them having much of a relationship. It turns out not exactly the case. And uh, on that day, uh, Ruth showed up at Gehrig's ceremony. And apparently, Ruth, uh, Gehrig was having quite a time composing himself and dealing with the whole thing. And according to the Times, Ruth came by and started joking with Gehrig and, uh, and made a few jokes on the microphone. Uh, and matter of fact, he started uh, joking around about the 2017 uh, could compete well against the existing team. This was during the middle of a doubleheader of 1939, saying, even though we're older, we'd beat them anyway. And he, he was going on and on. And they actually have a photograph. As soon as Gehrig finishes his speech, he's being hugged by Babe Ruth. And uh, Ruth brings a smile to Gehrig's lips. Uh, you know, and they obviously did get along. And Ruth obviously did make an effort. And, uh, you know, that's a small thing. But to me, it changed the way I understand that entire dynamic because they were two of the greatest players ever and certainly the greatest performing teammates, at least. So anyway, there is that. I know that probably interests no one but me. But uh, it's an interesting photograph. Uh, you want an obituary? On that note, on <laughs> I have an obituary yeah. that may be of interest to no one but me. Yes, go ahead. And, See if uh, you can match me. Yeah. Zeke, you still awake? Yeah, this is... Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, sadly, um, Howard... Gardner Cushing Jr. passed away on July 5th in Newport, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I was just flipping through this. It's just part of the death notices, mm -hmm. you know, the little blurbs in uh, the, the um, New York Times. And uh, Howard Cushing comes from the Cushing family that actually uh, it, it was the springboard was the uh, were helped to finance the sculptural obsessions of the subject of my master's oh, God. thesis. I know who this is. Okay. Hendrick Christian Anderson. Anderson. Yes. Okay. And uh, so uh, it just, you know, comes full circle. He, uh, this Howard Cushing actually named after the Howard Cushing who befriended um uh, Hendrick's brother mm -hmm. in Paris uh, as fledgling painters and uh, starts the whole ball rolling for this. And, uh, uh, you know, um, you remember that uh, Hendrick uh, was great claim to fame was that he was possibly had a relationship with, George. with Hendrick. Henry James. Henry James, I'm sorry. Henry James, My mistake. the writer. Yeah. Okay, the famous writer. I was so close. Uh, in, in addition to his bizarre, yeah. huge sculptures uh, that he... See, did uh, you ever see these sculptures, Zeke? Do you know what we're talking about? Mm, maybe. When yeah. we went to Rome, did I take you to... Yeah, they're like marble figures, Zeke. But not possibly not. On I don't steroids. Think he probably hasn't seen. It's those. hard to say. Anyway. I've seen marble figures in Rome, but that doesn't <laughs> narrow it down enough. These are quite uh, bizarre. Anyway, uh, Hendrick was a, an incredible character, and it just reminds me of something even more important that uh, doing this master's thesis yeah. uh, led me to do archival research at the Library of 
Congress, which was about the most academic fun I ever had in my life. Okay, you go and you sit in some room and they bring you piles of old letters and scribble scrabble, whatever in the file, and you go through it for hours and try to recreate somebody's life and what was in their mind. And it's just, it was a lot of fun. So anyway, thank you, Cushing family. Uh, As I've mentioned before, it's possible a lot of their money came from, I don't know... Shipping opium. Oh, damn. And you don't know. Let's stick with you don't know. But anyway, they have a nice house. wasn't involved in opium? Nice house in Newport. Yeah, well, that's what matters. Still standing today. There are a lot of nice houses in Newport. Uh, Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, So Zeke and we have been watching the same program, which is called Grand Designs. Perhaps, Zeke, you can describe this. Sure. So we were turned on to this from an article in the Times that cited it as a, a great opportunity for comfort viewing. Uh, comfort viewing, three reasons I love Grand Designs. That's the title of the article. And sure enough, uh, it's a fun show. It's uh, I think it, it appealed to me because, you know, I've I've had, uh, you know, the odd uh, HGTV phase here and there of just getting really into watching someone try to make their home really great or beautiful and uh in this case this is these are stories in each episode about british people trying to build the house of their dreams so there's a a lot that goes into that and there things can really uh uh you know go wrong or result in in some impressive stuff uh i only watched a couple episodes but i thought it was pretty compelling and it's just interesting to see people take on these really big projects, crazy projects. But how did how did it compare in entertainment uh, value to you compared to the shows you've watched on HGTV? You know, like Fixer Uppers or you know that kind of stuff. I feel like the the HGTV shows. I mean, sometimes uh, I don't know. They're not as exciting. If the stakes are a little bit smaller, it's hard for me to get excited about someone. You know, reworking a particular room. They, you know, change the color of a wall here or there. It's more exciting for me if they're taking on some big project or strange project. But uh, one of the most refreshing things about this show is that it has a whole different sensibility from uh, North American reality programs that we see in HGTV. So uh, it can be a little rough if you watch a lot of house hunters in a row, how much the narrator wants you to review uh, a few simple facts over and over again to really make sure you're following along and there are certain sacred cows about what uh, I guess which which uh, people can be um, I don't know I uh, challenged I guess so that that they generally try to be pretty nice to the folks uh, who are doing the buying or building uh, with some you know gentle uh, you know, admonishments about trying to go beyond their budget. And the budget can also be like pretty abstracted or uh, kind of, uh, you know, ignored in favor of a happy ending. And it seems like Grand Designs does not have those limitations. It's more willing to have their their host just tell someone, you really think you're going to build this on time? Seems like you won't. (laughs) Seems like everything's behind schedule and you're over budget. And yeah. you just get to see how that conversation goes. And that's pretty no, he, fun. He goes up to these guys and says, so you're scheduled to finish in November? I, I don't think you'll be done within a year of that. 
I don't think there's much chance at all. Yeah, we, and, watched, uh, we watched an episode where he says exactly that to this uh, Irish fellow who's uh, refurbishing and expanding a castle, thinks he's going to get it done in eight months. And he, he really does place a bet with this man for 120 euros. He says, I, you just watch him on screen betting him 120 euros that he won't get it, it done a, within a year of the quid. deadline. It actually was 120 quid, but the 120 quid is, is general euros these days. But the, and, he, and he collects the money from him. Yeah, he takes a, the cash from him. <laughs> he, no, but he, he uses it for something. You see him hand over yeah, the cash. Yeah. He yeah. makes him hand over the cash. Yeah, so yeah. just to give people a sense of the projects, to underscore your point, Zeke, the first one is this huge castle, which is a crazy idea to refurbish this castle. And it's a castle in every sense of the word. It looks like no, it's, it's not. It's, it's a small a, castle. Oh, it's no, a no, small no. castle, but it is a castle. It has, a it, castle. it has it's ramparts. A castle. It's a <laughs> castle, okay? It's something with a few towers. All right. And uh, <laughs> and no plumbing. And then the, and, and the second project that we both saw, I think, is the one that they're building a uh, sort of a, in a small space, a very modernistic structure on the Thames, on the river there. Uh, which, in fact, apparently uh, earned the ire of all the neighbors who, who were all had structures on a certain type of Tudor architecture. I don't know how you'd describe it. What did he call it, Zeke? You called Tudor it Beethin. Tudor Beethin. Yeah. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, okay. This is and for when you're in a big like hurry it. and you don't want to say Tudor. Well, really, specifically Elizabethan, or maybe not. Maybe just that general area. Tudor Beethin. Okay. Tudor Beethin. I'm glad you guys caught that. So this is exactly, <laughs> this is sort of a 20s, first and a half century structure super futuristic and the capper was having a roof made of this very special terracotta which is made in germany which will last until the end of time apparently and uh it, it in the way it looks it doesn't fit with everything else and it was incredibly ambitious to build this on the water and at a certain point you wondered whether whatever happened but this one was in fact at least in the eye of the host a tremendous success and it was an attractive building but very very ambitious structure. yeah it took it's, them uh what did uh, three and a half years to get it through uh, yeah. to get the permits yeah that's what that would have been a whole different <laughs> episode <laughs> no it's it's it can be brutal i mean it takes them all that time and they go over budget they think it's going to be eight hundred fifty thousand pounds it ends up being 1.15 million pounds right right uh so that's pretty far over budget and the, the also to mention that other episode that poor guy with his castle uh, yeah. He doesn't even get it done. No, he doesn't get it no done. There's no happy ending. There's no, <laughs> just there's no guarantee. He works on it for years. The financing dries up, and then he has a half-built castle in the middle of Ireland. Yeah, it's, 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 it's there. There, there are these huge risks, and things can go terribly wrong. I one thing I enjoyed about the River Thames episode was that uh, the neighbors really do hate them, and it comes through. <laughs> and and that part is delightful. Uh, it's. It really, but, but it's like the, having the a owners little... hate the neighbors too. <laughs> they do. Oh, good. The owners, the owners <laughs> so seem kind okay. of awful. I don't know how those people are in real life, but they come off as kind of awful. And it's it's fun though because it's like having a little Christopher Guest film just embedded in the episode. <laughs> right. uh, the, at one point, they're going to, uh, you know, enlist an architect that they know to get the plans written up and say, "Oh, that seems like a good plan." They are. Why do they know this architect? Well, it's the ex-husband of the woman in this couple. <laughs> Yeah, and I was saying, oh, well, this this could this go wrong? Yes, it could go wrong. The next time they talk to them, they say, oh, well, uh, I believe the conversation is the host says, like, oh, so you uh, you have this art, you have this architect formerly engaged to do this project, uh, kind of a, a I guess former partner of yours in this project, and the man answers him by saying, yes, also now former friend. So. <laughs> 
So you learn yeah. that these people, they don't no. just happen to be building their dream house. They are uh, chasing their white whale. They are destroying relationships in the process. They, well, they're what, doing what must is, be done to erect realistic. the structure but, but that, of their That dreams. is the theme of the show. Yeah. Is that the, not, not that these are just grand in yeah. the idea of wonderful, that they're... Too grand. Yeah. Well, let yeah. me just let yeah. me just one thing I have to do. And a lot can go wrong, for, and a lot does, and that's what makes it for, interesting. From some work I've done in, in television representation, a lot of the shows that we were talking about before, the fixer upper shows, uh, the way they do that is they find uh, a couple who's just moved or just renovated, and and then they create the prequel, if you will. Right. They okay. show up. Yeah, we know that. But right. but what's great about this is. They feel, this goes on over six or seven years. They have film and conversations over six or seven years. They're there at the at the ground floor, if you will. And that's what it makes it that much yeah. more real and, and more it, compelling. But it is also very comfortable with things going wrong. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So, uh, and we'll just close. Uh, you know, we're back on the Criterion channel, Zeke. Uh, your oh, mom by the way, we should just say that um, Grand Designs yeah, right. is on Netflix Yes. Netflix. Yeah, they only have a couple it. of the seasons. There are tons of right. seasons of this show, and Netflix only has two. But, uh, you know, if, if you just want to try it out, Netflix is an easy way to get right. into it. Yeah. Right. So we did, uh, we were on the Criterion channel, and we picked up a movie called Homicide by David Mamet. And uh, it was made in 1991, starring uh, William Macy and Joe Mantegna. Uh, which is a very interesting film. Uh, it's uh, about a policeman in uh, in Baltimore who's going through some tough times, dealing with a lot of uh, rough crimes. And uh, what the story becomes is at the same time, he's assigned to uh, uh, a crime involving a Jewish family. He's Jewish. And it takes him into a little bit uh, of a self-examination, searching self-examination about his own Jewish roots and starts testing his allegiance to the police force on the one hand, the Jewish community on the other. Um, I'll, I'll stop there in terms of describing the movie, uh, but it's a very interesting movie. I'm not saying it's a great movie by any means. It's kind of an odd movie. It almost felt like you're watching David Mamet's first film because it seemed in some ways a little stagey and a little awkward. And yet when I looked it up, he had already made by that point uh, House of Games, Glengarry Glenn Ross, The Verdict, The Untouchables. He was an experienced filmmaker. And so that's not what's going on. He made the movie he wanted to make, um, which particularly at the end of it was kind of tricky, trying to figure out what was going on and what was meant. And Tamsin, I found some websites discussing the ending of this movie okay. that you can't figure it out. So what do you think of it? I thought it was okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it, no, I've I been can, watching a lot of crime movies lately. Yes, but this is different. I mean, the nice thing about the Criterion Channel is they're more ambitious movies. They don't always land, and I don't think this okay. movie was a complete success by any means. But it was kind of an interesting film. Yeah. Uh, but you, it wasn't easy to find. No, wasn't easy to you find. You have to keep. Got to work on it. Yeah, there are a lot of movies about homicide. <laughs> <laughs> but homicide's not a good search for so You want David Mamet's yeah. homicide, right? Uh, all right, so that's all we have this week. All right, so this was an interesting experiment. That, Good that to means... have you aboard, Zeke. Zeke, you've added a lot. Good There's no to question be about aboard. It. All right, so here we go. Time to, uh, I don't know. Sign off. Sign off. We'll see what happens uh, next week uh, at uh, Tamsin Dan Read the Paper. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. And, and, and Zeke Abuhoff. I knew you'd get it, Zeke. <laughs> see you next week, everybody. You're a natural. Bye. Bye.
Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople, been a long time gone, oh Constantinople, still it's Turkish delight on a moonlit night. Every gal in Constantinople lives in Istanbul, not Constantinople, so if you've a date in Constantinople, she'll be waiting in Istanbul, even old New York was once New Amsterdam. Why they changed it, I can't say People just liked it better that way Take me back to Constantinople No, you can't go back to Constantinople Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople Why did Constantinople get the works? That's nobody's business but the Turks Liked it better that way. Take me back to Constantinople. No, you can't go back to Constantinople. Now it's Istanbul, not Constantinople. Why did Constantinople get the works? That's all. 